2: Welcome to Unobscured, a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke.
3: Our guest historian today is Nancy Rubin-Stewart. She's an award-winning author and journalist whose biographies dig deep into the lives of women who were power players during pivotal moments in American history. Storytelling is her life's work. She's the executive director of the Cape Cod Writers' Center in Massachusetts and she's co-president of the Boston chapter of the National Book Association. Researcher Carl Nellis talked with Nancy about her book on Maggie Fox, The Reluctant Spiritualist, which retells Maggie's life in dramatic detail. About halfway through the conversation, a storm rose up around the studio and forced us to make some changes to the recording setup. It made us wonder whether Maggie was 100% pleased with the project, but I think that you'll want to hear Nancy's side of the story anyway. So, we begin with Nancy's perspective on what it took to be a spiritualist in the 19th century. This is the Unobscured Interview Series for Season 2. I'm Aaron Mankey.
4: To be a spiritualist in the 19th century, uh, I think, would take quite a bit of pluck and bravery. Um, Depends on where you are, because you would either be revered, adored, admired, or you would be despised and connected with all the evil things in the world and all of the fears in religion about communion with the devil.
1: Mm.
5: So what were the motivations then? So you say it would take pluck and bravery, uh, and that's, that's so clear in the lives of the people who were involved, but what would motivate someone to, to become a medium or to go to a seance?
4: Well, to become a medium, I think, I mean, the movement itself had huge resonance through society. You have to understand that in the 19th century, especially in the, the early years and up to the Civil War, Uh, There was great religious ferment and change. Um, It started with the Second Great Awakening, which was sort of a refutation in in a way of many of the Enlightenment ideas of of uh, reason and logic. Um, And so, the Second Great Awakening looked at the really evolves from Romanticism, English Romanticism, where um, you know that there's emotion and that human beings. Um, There's something magical and mysterious about us. And so there's a revival at that point of different and really um, transformation of many different religious ideas so that you have new sects forming, you have revival meetings, you have camp meetings, you have charismatic preachers. um, And you have questioning of the old Calvinistic ideas that man was, you know, imbued with original sin and he must suffer. And if he didn't live a certain kind of a life, he would— he would burn in hellfire. All of this, with the changes that are going on around it in in nineteenth century American industrialism, cities, urbanization, and so on, um, made people think that you know there were there were other ways to be a good person and other ways to embrace the world. And so, brotherhood and abolition and co education and all of these themes start to come in. So. Questions about religion, the old religion, and then questions about the afterlife prevail. And so there's sort of, as I say, a breakdown of the old, very old values and a look at, well, maybe death, which, by the way, was, you know, the life expectancy was short for children, um, for women, and for men. I mean, in Massachusetts, for instance, the life expectancy for a man was 50, for a woman, this is average, was forty-two, so death is all around us every moment. So, what is death? Is it to be feared? Are we to burn in hellfire for our sins, um, or you know, is death something that is is benevolent and kind, and you know, in, in, infects all of us, and that therefore we shouldn't fear it? So, given that is is a long background, mm. um, so spiritualism becomes the idea that one can commune with, that the human being is not just a body. Just a logical, rational you know set of tissues and cells and whatnot, but is rather there's something higher there's a spirit, and that spirit cannot be quelled or die with with the body's death and so spiritualism is is a communion with the spirits of those who have gone and a happy communion in general a, a positive one
5: mm. so Another kind of big picture question, but that reframes the conversation just a bit is how significant is spiritualism as a chapter in American history, particularly for women in American, maybe in American women's history?
4: Well, it's yes, it's extremely significant for women. I'll come back to that in a moment, but it's also Um, I would say that it is, it is a conduit for many things that are today greatly transformed from that because it encompasses many different social movements. Uh, it encompasses early psychology. It encompasses, um, early political, um, means of, um, you know, looking to get rid of slavery. Um it, 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 um it has a whole, whole. besides what we know about today, when we think about spiritualism, and, and I'm talking now in the vernacular, psychics and crystals and all the previous New Age that went on in the, in the um, 1990s and so on, all of that really goes back to what happened with spiritualism and this whole resurgence of this idea of communing with spirits. So it's very important movement, um, which we just really don't even think that much about today, except in certain circles. But as to women, it's very important, because uh, women were very much involved in, um, in the very early days um, with the, the pro-social movements of abolition, in particular, uh, and brotherhood, and obviously the beginnings of women's rights, where you want to have equal rights for everybody, that all souls are equal. I mean... We get into that whole aspect of religion, which I'll come back to later. But um, where all souls are equal, therefore all people, in a way, all all people of all colors and races and creeds, are equal. And so, abolition, um, which is which is sort of the driving force, uh, people like William Lloyd Garrison, for instance, was a spiritualist. So there's a belief um, that that spirits. Uh, should be, all spirits should be respected. And therefore, so women in their early, very early women's rights, many of those people um, actually sat at at some of the very early seance tables. In fact, you know, it's been said that some of the early founders, by the way, people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, um, for instance, there are others, too, the McClintocks, um, and some of the others, the very early ones, that that those tables that, that, you know, this is all all blended in in the, in the very early days um, before the 1848 Seneca Falls Convention.
5: Before we dive into the life of Maggie Fox, the people that she knew, the events she was a part of, um, I wanted to ask one more question kind of about about your work and your perspective, because in addition to writing a biography of Maggie Fox, you've also written historical biographies of Marjorie Meriwether Post and Mercy Otis Warren and Isabel of Castile. And... It made me wonder if there's a common thread between the women that you've chosen to write these long book-length studies about.
4: Yes. (laughs) There is. Not that it was ever, I guess, in the beginning intentional. Um, But, I mean, the first biography I... Well, I'd written other journalistic books before that on social trends and women, but the first biography I wrote was on Isabella of Castile, Queen Isabella, and but you've mentioned the other books, so I won't belabor that. But more importantly, I was curious, and this is going way back. But really, this is going back now. You know, in in you know earlier, that what what about women in power, and what happened to wi- the women in power much earlier than our time? I mean, right now we're hearing a great deal about this again, um, but then um, particularly with what's gone on with the Me Too movement, but. What happened to women who had power? There were women occasionally in history who had power. And what happened to those who didn't have power and why? So my biographies all reflect that. That's the link.
5: Mm -hmm. So let's step back into the 1840s. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that it's this period of religious ferment. Uh, And some of what we're seeing in that history is... Uh, some young traditions, some young denominations are starting to grow in power and conflict with each other. Uh, Methodists, universalists, uh, there are shaker communities. Uh, and you mentioned the revivalist kind of practices of camp meetings and circuit preaching and that kind of thing. How did this kind of religious atmosphere open space for spiritualism in particular? And, and w- which traditions in this ferment were the strongest influences on spiritualism's uh, origin?
4: Well, I think it's it's again it's a it's a mix. It was what we'd call the Zeitgeist of of the time, the flavor of the time, what was sort of in the air, what was being discussed, because all of this was being discussed and experienced in upstate New York in particular, uh which by the way was a a very prosperous uh area, uh, because the Erie Canal had opened and so all the Uh, produce and um, all the furs and all kinds of other things that were coming from the North could now come down through the canal uh, into the Hudson and down to New York city. So places like Rochester, New York, which is near where the spiritualism, the official start of American spiritualism supposedly begins. um, And I'll explain that in a minute, supposedly because there's a lot of other threads that feed into that. Um, So, so it's, so Rochester, New York, is a very sophisticated, at that point, area. It's a city, and it's prospering, and it has filled with ideas, and people have come in because, again, it's one of the conduits for the early, early the Erie Canal, and it's, it's um, you know, in its own way, quite sophisticated in terms of ideas. But as it turns out, also, it's, Rochester's in the middle of what was then in western New York, and um, all of the sort of the, the, the leading new religions, um, the Millerites, <clears throat> who had predicted the end of the world, um, you know, which eventually becomes the Seven Day Adventists. Um, the, the, the Shakers had come from England. The Shakers were a branch of the Quakers, but they were called Shakers because they shook during their religious ecstasy um, pronouncements. So the Shakers come from England, but they also are settling in upstate New York. And of course, the Mormons. Um, the Book of Moroni and um, Joseph Smith all start in upstate New York. So this enormous religious ferment. And out of that religious ferment, by the way, also comes a skepticism eventually, because there's so much of it. In fact, it's been called, Western New York at that time, the burnt out area, that people were really burnt out with all of these camp meetings and these different religious um, expressions and meetings and, and so on. And so there's a sort of a quest for a return to the simplicity and you know not that spiritualism is simple but the idea of it is that again we'll come back to the all souls and the um, pushes underground railroad is really important in upstate new york Uh, many many women in particular are helping um, but men too are helping uh, slaves escape so they can escape up to canada and be free So in all of that, this idea comes out. Now, there's a man called Andrew Jackson Davis, and Andrew Jackson Davis had based his ideas on this idea of communion with the spirits um, with uh, an earlier um, European philosopher, Swedenborg. So Swedenborgism and Andrew Jackson, he he then promotes a book um, just before the Fox sisters sort of begin and they know nothing about—they, the, the girls, know nothing about it. But he promotes the idea of spirit communication, again, and that one can communicate with spirits. Spirit communication is, is ancient. It's probably as old as mankind. I mean, it goes way back into the Greek philosophers. It's, it's in many Asian religions. Um, the, the Native Americans uh, continue to worship uh, spirits. So this is not new, but he's given it kind of a new twist. Uh, so, um, that is the background for how this, this book, this book, The Divine Revelations of Nature, um, comes out as uh, a best-selling book, and it sweeps the country. Um, and one of the people who, who reads it is none other than, than the girl's older sister, Leah Fox Fish. But the girls don't know anything about this. They begin spiritualism in such a humble way um, by first trying to play tricks on their mother, that their little farmhouse, which is in, um, it's about 30 miles from Rochester, is haunted. I mean, it begins in such an incredibly folksy, homey way. Um, and that's part of its appeal. Um, and they, are, they, Maggie Fox, the, the heroine of my, or the main character of my book, is, is 15, and her sister, Katie, is 12. I mean, they know nothing about the other part. It's just fantastic coincidence that, that really ignites the beginning of spiritualism.
5: Mm. And can you describe uh, in brief what it is that they do that kicks this whole thing off?
4: <laughs> sure. Well, the mother is very superstitious. <clears throat> the girls had come, they'd all, the whole family had come from Rochester. So you have this 15-year-old bored Maggie Fox. She wants to be back in Rochester. She's a teenager, obviously. Uh, And Katie, who is a little sister, will follow her. And their mother is so superstitious, and they live in this old farmhouse, and they start thinking about, well, who lived there before? People lived here before? Did people die here before? And then they decide they're going to play jokes on their mother. And so at first, they're doing all kinds of things. Somehow or other, and I've, by the way, I've tried this. It doesn't work for me. (laughs) They have tried to make sounds with their toes, um, popping their toes, popping their ankles, and so on, um, to make these wraps, these ghostly wraps that would occur at night. And then to sort of hype this up, I mean, they keep practicing it. They have a cousin, actually, Leah's daughter, their, their sister's, their older sister's daughter, who was with them at first. And then to kind of rev this up, they, they tie strings on apples and they mimic footsteps in the middle of the night and scare their mother. Um, (laughs) so that's really how it begins. And she becomes convinced. And then they, they, they go too far with it. Their mother becomes so convinced that they continue with it. They are, they're thrilled by it. And then they, they say, they think there's a spirit they can communicate with and they talk to it. And then one will talk to it and the other, other one will make quietly raps with her feet. And, Pretty soon, Mrs. Fox becomes so excited and hysterical that she invites in the neighbors, and now they're caught. So they continue on with these seances. And, uh, of course, the church, the local Methodist Episcopal church is not too happy with them. But anyway, this becomes a crowd, a sensation, and and people start coming from all over. And there's a, a man who I guess would be an investigative reporter today who starts writing about them and visiting them, and it gets promoted in newspapers in Rochester. And it really becomes quite a, a sensation. And meanwhile, Leah, their oldest sister, who is a single mother at this point and a piano teacher in Rochester, who's read the, Sweden, the Andrew Jackson Davis. Uh, book and knows of all these ideas that are going on. I mean, she's a piano teacher to the wealthy in Rochester. She comes to find out what is going on with her, with this seance. By now there are crowds of people, the people lining up the whole Fox household is in cannot function is just it's they can't control these seances. And every night they do these seances. Um and Mrs. Fox kind of sort of announces them. And the girls are caught in this terrible sort of a lie, but they can't, you know, they're going to be disgraced. Their parents will be disgraced if they, they, uh, they refute it. And Leia needs money. Um, and she's quite a promoter. She's really a very good PR person. Um, she brings them to Rochester and she, she has them. She forces them. She sort of blackmails them, actually. She's not the, the kindest person. And she blackmails them, um, that she's going to expose them if they don't continue these seances. And then she tries to learn how to do these movements with their toes. But her, she's older. She's in her 30s. She can't move her feet the way they did. Um, so she depends on them for that. And, of course, eventually, as this newspaper hubbub continues, uh, it ends up that there it it reaches... I mean, there are people like Horace Greeley in the New York Tribune and others, but he in particular, who gets wind of it, he sets sends up a reporter to... To witness it. They attend all these seances. You know, there's a lot of funny stories and strange stories. One can make the argument that these girls, through Leah, would know about the, the people whose, whose families, loved ones, had died, and so they learned a lot of information. And when they sit in a darkened room and hold hands and, and sort of do a religious ceremony, you know, blessing everyone with peace and, and contentment, that they're going to reach one of these deceased people um, and then suddenly the raps come um, and then either Leia interprets them uh, as to what it's about and relates intimate details about this beloved one's lost one's life. People are amazed and believe it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know there are many accounts, not just then but later on, where you really have to wonder whether there's whether they develop a clairvoyance, um, because some of them are inexplicable, and it's threaded throughout the book, but there are those other incidents. But anyway, it finally gets to be so big, and meanwhile, the church is, of course, are horrified. They think these girls are witches. They are communing with something they shouldn't be communing with—the dead. Uh, so that they're, they're, you know, again, as I said earlier, they're, they're, uh, you know, there are death threats against them, and they have to be, you know, very careful where they go. Um, and some very religious clergy and people in Rochester threatened to, to uh, kill them or run them out of town or tar, them, tar and feather them at the least. Anyway, they end up <laughs> in November uh, of 48, 40, uh, um, they end up on, on a huge stage um, in Corinthian Hall, which is a grand hall in Rochester at that time, and they give a seance. But uh, the raps are just very vaguely heard. I mean, it's obviously a la- rather large auditorium. The press is there. Uh, one of Horace Greeley's reporters there from New York. There are other reporters there and um, from the Rochester papers and elsewhere in upstate New York. And um, so there's an outcry. This is, are they frauds? Are they hoaxes? What What's happening? And there's a committee appointed to examine the girls, uh, particularly Leah and and Maggie, at this point, to find out are they making these signs with their body? That they must be. So these these examinations go on for four or five days, um, several of them, because it's an age of modesty for women with women. Um, you know, having them be basically undressed down to their underwear and examining them. And and there's all kinds of prominent people who are now believers. Um, everything from you know city officials uh, to judges and even senators. Um, because they have had the opportunity to be in a seance and communicate with a loved one. And most of the time, the messages, by the way, are reassuring um, to the people who are still grieving. So that, that goes on for five days with these examinations, but nothing is, is determined. And the, the publicity on this spreads as they continue to do these seances, which, by the way, layers pocketing most of the money. Which Maggie, in one of her books um, later on, uh, *The Missing Link* uh, to Spiritualism, um, you know, later, much later in life, bitterly describes. Uh, But anyway, it grows; the movement grows, and within a year or two, um, I mean, they're they're nationally known. Uh, There are child mediums springing up in other places. There are spirit circles that are now in seven or eight cities across America. Um, you know, from Philadelphia to San Francisco, people become believers, there are new mediums. I mean, the idea for a medium was you had a, a pretty untainted spirit that you could commune with yourself. You were a, per, a living person who had, you know, you were innocent, you were able, and you were able to receive these, these perceptions and these messages. So there are many, many child mediums, and then, of course, in particular, women mediums, because they were so much more protected from, quotes, the the real hustle-bustle male world in the 19th century. And eventually, they get to New York, Mm -hmm. where Horace Greeley, again, um, is kind of watching them and promoting them and being kind to them and meeting them. And they're staying in, you know, wonderful hotels. They're Broadway it was a Broadway uh, doll uh, song written about them? There were dolls that have made replica. You, you know, it was it was it became a rage all over. Um, so now you have these country girls who have been brought up into this this entire venue, uh, this this whole way of thinking about people and learning about them and trying to interpret what what them what the spirits are saying when there are these seances. Uh, it's an incredible movement. Um, by se- by 1854, there are 15,000 petitions signed signed in a petition um, by some very prominent senators and and judges and so on, and it's brought to Congress because now <laughs> it's become this outrage. I mean, the religions are all up in the air about the the standard religions, and mm. um, but you know there's a funny discussion that goes on about how to how to do this in congress but ultimately it's it's t- it's tabled for the moment um but it i just want to mention that because it just shows you the, the enormity the of uh, the popularity of it and um the, f- the fantastic publicity that surrounded this early movement
5: mm. and you mentioned that some of that publicity is is positive and they make friends among uh the press like Horace Greeley at the same time, some of the doubts, right, that started at the very beginning, like you mentioned, continue on. Uh, after that first investigation in 1848, um, there's also an eighteen fifty-one investigation where they bring in yeah. Buffalo University faculty and
4: oh yeah.
5: And they have a relative, Mrs. Culver, who publishes an account saying that Maggie admitted to her how they mm-hmm. made the raps and the fact that they were staged and that kind of thing. Yeah. What effect did the these kind of personal pushbacks or the constant scrutiny have on uh, Maggie Fox, say, in particular?
4: (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, she doesn't, she, at least in the beginning, does not love this. She's kind of roped into it. She's kind of caught in it. uh, You know, she's one of the, she's really more in the beginning, more the one who does it more than Katie, who Katie learns. Katie seems to become quite clairvoyant. Um, but Maggie at times has gone on strike with her sister, Leia, because she resents the fact that Leia is so overbearing and grasping and she seems to keep all the money to herself. And while they live well and they're, you know, they probably have bodyguards, um, <clears throat> dress well and they're celebrities. Um, she's just not completely pleased with it. You know, I just want to say there are, there are distinguished people who all sort of weigh in on this, besides doctors and senators and Congress and so on. There are distinguished writers and thinkers who also weigh in on this. People like Ralph Waldo Emerson, <clears throat> who, while transcendentalism is, is his, his pet philosophy, transcendentalism meaning that this world is only a shadow, what this physical world is only a shadow of a larger spiritual one. I mean, again, this is part of the whole the whole aura of the time. Uh, but, but you know, he becomes disgusted, and he finally he calls it a rat revelation, that the gospel that comes in by wraps in the wall uh, and bumps in the table drawer. And James Russell Lowett, the poet, condemns it, and Henry David Thoreau says that he thinks people who believed it were idiots inspired by the crackling of a restless board. Um, and yet there are famous professors like... like um, uh, uh, Professor Emeritus of University of Pennsylvania Chemist, Robert Hare, who becomes a believer. Um, so, but anyway, so Maggie at times um, has rebelled and this has not worked too well. And she's, again, caught up in this this whole kind of a whirlwind of publicity and fame and celebrityhood and attention and so on. But she's, she and I, I'll call her the reluctant spiritualist because she's, again, she's kind of, She's kind of forced into keep keep doing this and she has she has at least a sensitivity to people uh, and maybe some clairvoyance. it would seem that way from some of the later reports. Um, in my book, I, I really don't judge who I tell the story because I'm a storyteller, but I don't judge whether I mean there are clairvoyants. there are people who work for the police department today and and other things that have happened that there are occasionally people who you know, who seem to be able to predict or understand um, something that isn't obvious to the rest of us. So Maggie has become, by now she's, she's 18, 19, and she's Leah wants to spread out the people who do the seances. Katie is already 15 or 16, so she's got Katie in New York to work with her, and they do tours really all over by railroad, but Katie... Um, and Katie seem, is now a beautiful young woman. Also, they're both very good looking, which certainly helps um, have both men and women admire them on the in the seance circle and be close to these celebrities. But Maggie finally goes to the Webb Hotel in Philadelphia, and she's giving she gives seances there. I'm going to stop there because it starts her her whole other story. Right, but, and
5: I want to I yeah. actually I want to jump to that in just a minute, but. There's an episode. There's a there's a kind of dramatic episode in Troy, New York, as well for Maggie. Um, right before she gets to Philadelphia, do you remember the details of that?
4: She is remarkable. is is all I can say. It's 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 very strange. Um, but again, there are terrible death threats that are made for them mm. towards them, and and so so it is with with Maggie, and she just doesn't want to go on. I mean, she's she's kind of a nervous character. Well, you can understand why. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's kind of nervous and she just doesn't want to go on. But she's again, she's caught up in this forced to go on. It's, It's too late to refute it. It's too many now thousands of people and too many things that have happened. And so she must continue.
5: Well, then let's jump to Philadelphia and that other part of her life that opens up when she meets Elisha Cain.
4: Yeah, Elisha Kent Kane uh, was a uh, from an elite Philadelphia family. His father was a judge, um, and his mother, you know, was you know from a very well well-to-do Philadelphia family, and they're very distinguished, uh, upstanding citizens. And Elisha Kent Kane is a physician, um, but he's also an explorer. Uh, he has rheumatic fever, so I remember in his father said to him well your life may be short but make it really useful and elisha knowing he had rheumatic fever um which was fairly common in those days uh did exactly what his father said besides being a physician he he had uh, he wanted to learn more about the world and he wanted to help people in other ways and one of the one of the things that intrigued him was the um uh, the, the disappearance of Sir John Franklin, who was a British explorer, went to the Arctic with a crew of men, and they disappeared, and nobody could find them. And he was determined that that, that he he could. And so he went with his own crew of people uh, on um, the Resolute, uh, and he went to the Arctic. He had already been to the Arctic once, and not funded enough, even though... Um, major universities and major major funders, including, I believe, um, part of the Smithsonian, the early Smithsonian had helped uh, fund that expedition. Well, he came back and in um, 1852, he, I don't know why, but I think he was intrigued. He's intrigued with everything. He's intrigued with ideas. He decides he's going to investigate and he's extremely dubious, being a physician, he's been dubious uh, about the reality of this, this seance. So he goes to a seance with Maggie Fox. Both Maggie and Katie were very beautiful young women, so <laughs> that certainly did help um in terms of people being popular and amazed and you know this was a time when women didn't speak out in public and were doing that and so were mediums around the country now for the first time so it's pretty interesting
3: mm. but
4: anyway maggie it's so it's 1852 it's webb's hotel in philadelphia she's there by herself doing séances and he appears and he's dubious but that he comes back again a few more times and of course they have discussions and he becomes intrigued and pretty soon they're in love and this is not uh, going to go too well with Leia because Leia wants to keep Maggie as sort of a cash cow um she certainly doesn't want her getting involved with somebody like him and he uh he's as I say from this this really elite family his father's a district judge um, his mother is an important society matron in um, Philadelphia. They're a distinguished couple, um, and they have a very um, politically prominent family in Philadelphia. Nevertheless, he continues to court her, and when Maggie goes back to New York, there's all kinds of scenes. There are many different episodes that happen, um, and they, she does have to go to Washington, D.C., um, where, again, she's you know, doing seances for very prominent people and senators and so on, and he wants to marry her, and there are bitter fights with, um, with Leia, and this is going to really, I mean, and moreover, he wants to make her into his wife. Well, she's not going to be a medium, which was considered at that time. Again, there's a great deal of skepticism, you know, who are these people? I mean, they're they're like actors, they're fraudists, they're actors and actresses who aren't considered among the highest level, no matter how gifted in in, uh, the middle of um, 19th century America. And there's great disdain and contempt for these people and they're they're roguish. Um, So this is not going to happen, but he has an idea that he's going to turn Maggie into, quotes, a lady. And, um, He'll do so by sending her, he'll educate her. <clears throat> she, of course, had not had much education from the time she was about 15, uh, once they started to become popular. So um, he, she agrees to marry him, and there's an enormous breach with Leia, and even with Katie, because Katie is now sort of the the main um, spiritualist along with Leia. Um, but Maggie is... You know, Maggie isn't madly in love with him and he with her. So he has to, he is about to take yet another expedition to the Arctic. And um, before he does, he he sets Maggie up in a school. Actually, it's in in a place called Crookville, Pennsylvania, which always amuses (laughs) me. (laughs) But uh, it's, uh, it's with a woman who has is a teacher, and it's all actually almost, I think it's a private situation, and she lives Mm -hmm. there, and the woman sort of makes sure she isn't doing anything improper, and she's keeping her, you know, making her study all the time. This is not good for Maggie, and she's out in the country. She's bored out of her, just bored to tears, and um, she returns a few times to New York City. Meanwhile, on um, May 31st, 1853, um, Alicia Kane um departs um, with a crew, and he's funded by the Smithsonian and all kinds of other people, and there's fanfare, there's a huge uh, salutes. Um, um, it, he's not a member, of the, he's not, you know, part of the Navy, but there's Navy escorts and so on, and newspapers and so on, and off he goes to the Arctic again and uh, Maggie is stuck with this woman, <laughs> Mrs. Turner, in Cro- Crookville and runs, keeps coming back to New York. And he is gone for, um, he's, he's actually gone for over two years, and she waits for him, not happily. She um, actually sends letters to Greenland several times. A few times, there's a couple of uncanny things where she senses he's in danger, even though she isn't hearing from him. And indeed, he is. Actually, the the, uh, the ship gets frozen in the ice, which is disastrous for the crew. Um, through all kinds of heroics, he uh, walks hundreds of miles in this freezing cold and learns how to reach other people. And some of the some of the crew now begin to work and live with the Native Americans, the Eskimos, up there. Um, some of the stories are pretty grim. He's also an artist, which is fascinating because there's a great book that he does later, um, which, um, the, in which there are wonderful drawings of what the Arctic looked like then, It's pretty ferocious. Anyway, he finally comes back, and the odd thing is, living in cold, cold air, yes, away from the impurities of whatever chimney smoke and whatever his rheumatic fevers is, is um, you know, he's much better, he's stronger, he's, he looks great. And then she waits for him and he, she hears about his arrival, of course, and she's waiting and waiting, and he doesn't come, and she becomes hysterical. Finally, two days later, he comes to her sheepishly, and she's at that point in New York and living in her mother's home. Mother, Her mother's home, by the way, is it's Horace Greeley's home, it's this townhouse, but he lives in the country then. And she's actually living with her, her tutor, her, her, her other person, the, the, the cane. A family had helped um, a friend who was trying to look after her. And mm-hmm. he comes to her, and he's she's so happy to see him, and she can't understand why he didn't come and see her right away, and she's waited two years. And he says to her, Maggie, uh, I can't marry you. And, you know, she's given up spiritualism. She's alienated most of her family. She has no income. Um, he had funded her up until now. It, why can't you marry me? Because... I can't approve of you, a rapper, which is what they called them, um, and um, I can't marry you. And um, she, she of course, becomes hysterical. Um, she's just not considered good enough for him. And she says, Well, you know, you say you love me no matter what. And he says, Well, um, yeah, but my family says they're going to disown me if I marry you. So, There are months and months of all kinds of um, attempts to get back together again and so on and break off. And meanwhile, Leah, of course, and Katie, I mean, there's a lot of tension with the Fox family and even Mrs. Fox because this is something they'd signed on and spent now quite a few years invested in and were known for that. Finally, finally, Mm. um, in late, um, in He's he's going to now he's he's back from the Arctic he's he's hero he's he's writing a book about this last trip he did not by the way find Sir John Franklin and his crew that is somewhat later that that is found they find the remains of those people but that's another story excuse me so um, finally uh, he's supposed to go to England to be honored by the Royal Society and to have a reception. All, Whitehall and all kinds of other dignitaries because it's fantastic that he did this. And his health is failing, but um, he's going to go anyway. And a, a few nights before he leaves, he suggests to her that they get married. But he can't marry her in a church because his family disapproves, and they will find out they're in Philadelphia. But they, they communication and newspapers and everything very quick between Philadelphia Railroad, very quick between Philadelphia and New York. And so finally, before Mrs. Fox and Katie and an unidentified friend, they exchange vows in what would be called a Quaker ceremony. Now, if you know about the Quakers, they often, this becomes a legitimate marriage. However, there's, in this case, there are no civil certificates or registrations. This is just quotes the marriage. Um, And she is thrilled. And several days later, he, he leaves, um, Uh, For Liverpool, England, Uh, and he arrives there on October twenty second, eighteen fifty six. And he his plan is now that he's married her, he's going to support Maggie with the proceeds from his book. His first book was popular, but this one, Arctic Explorations, is going to be even more popular. He's going to be able to support Maggie uh, on that money and not worry about his family disinheriting him. And there's you know a way that they have secretly, they have some intermediary who can, you know, get her letters to him in England and so on, because his family is still watching very carefully. Mm. Um, It's just really heartbreaking. And um, so, but what happens is he's in England and you know about England and 19th century chimney smoke, coal burning fireplaces and the air is really terribly polluted and his worsens his, rheumatic fever, he finally becomes so ill, he cannot go on to do some of the other things he was supposed to do. And the doctors, the royal physicians, hustle him off to a warm, sunny climate, and that turns out to be Cuba. Mm. And there are a couple of communications where he writes to her, or she, she doesn't get most of his, and he doesn't get any, really, almost any of her letters, because the family's always interfering. And he gets to Cuba, and he's almost dying, and uh, a couple of the members somehow get down to Cuba for his last days. And she reads about, she, before, he, before he married, he told her he would leave her something in his legacy if anything happened. Because he knew he was terribly ill and his days were numbered anyway. I mean, he always had these scary rheumatic fever attacks. But this one was deadly. This one was fatal. And so he dies. But she doesn't learn about it till she reads about it in the newspaper. So now she's without a way to make a living, and she's technically a widow. Um, And uh, there are some very unhappy years that follow. Um, And she she still has his letters. She um, tries to get the family to provide for her through, quotes, his legacy. He left $5,000 in a legacy, but... It's not really pinpointed for her, and she tries to prove with the family that she was his wife, and she should at least receive dower rights, and they get involved with attorneys, and there's a protracted lawsuit um, that goes on. Now, the lawsuit takes place in guess where? Philadelphia, of course, where he's from. And his father had been a district court judge, and the family keeps making these bargains. If she'll give the letters, because they don't want anyone to know he was married to, quotes the rapper, um, <laughs> um, then they'll provide for her, for her annuity out of this $5,000. And there's a struggle that goes on for a long, long time. <clears throat> but ultimately and somebody else, a n- neutral party holds the letters, but she gets a little bit of money, but it's not enough, and the lawsuit goes on. And finally, the lawsuit just, they just um, they just uh, don't believe her. The lawsuit is discounted. She's discounted. Um, she's made to feel ashamed um, that she's just nothing more than an opportunist and a promoter, and nobody, they don't even know if she really married him, and, you know, is she being another illicit woman here? And uh, finally, she falls into depressions. She also lashes out at them in letters and other behavior, and so she becomes known as a very unstable, emotionally disturbed person, which doesn't help with the lawsuit or her public image. And finally, out of desperation, and it's not until May of 1862 that she finally... Co has co-authors with this book um, with uh, <clears throat> a prominent social, a prominent spiritualist and a journalist. It's called The Love Life of Dr. Cain, in which she publishes the letters and thinks this is going to make her money and also justify and and validate her love affair with Dr. Cain. You know, but by then, um, nobody, it's, look, it's after the Civil War, um, Actually, it's right sort of in the it's sort of in the middle of the Civil War. nobody really is too involved with this whole spiritual scandal that had gone on beforehand, and she's been forgotten. so basically, there's really no money um, that's left for her to live on the family really does never come through with the rest of uh, of that that settlement.
5: Do we know what the Fox sisters thought of the Civil War? I mean, it seems pretty clear that this was really what occupied Maggie's attention, but do we have any other kind of indication?
4: You know, the records, first of all, I should probably have said earlier on the records, um, on some of this are all, you know, they're all obviously contradictory records everywhere, but they're not all that well documented. So we don't have, we don't have everything that we wish we did to, to verify as, as one would do today. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't, I would assume, given their long history with abolition earlier on in their lives, they would, um, you know, be in favor <clears throat> of the, the freeing of the slaves. Um, but I can't tell you that in any definite way. But I do know that the Civil War revived still more interest in spiritualism because, unfortunately, there were so many deaths from it that people, again, sought to com- communicate with their lost
5: loved ones. You write so beautifully about Maggie's real sense of suffering and loss. And she also starts to drink more and more and more at this time. Can you talk about um, alcoholism for Maggie and for Kate?
4: Yeah. Let me just say that, let's just back up for a minute. And let's just say, uh, first of all, her father, had been an alcoholic, and at one point the her parents had separated until he reformed. So there's alcohol in his family, and as we know today there happens to be a hereditary tendency for this, but that wasn't known then. Um, also, by the 1830s, uh, along with all of this <coughs> reform that was going on, there was the beginnings of a real big-time temperance movement. So alcohol is... Um, frowned upon by many religious groups and and in the public in general, even though it's extremely common. Um, Maggie, in the midst of her breakdowns and so on, after uh, Elisha's death, um, finally actually becomes a Catholic, which is interesting, but it was something that Elisha had expressed interest in. Um, But, you know, the Catholics do not believe that one should be communing with uh, the, the dead. Um, in any case, she does become a Catholic. She is drinking more and more. And by the way, her sister, who's become quite a famous and now beautiful, uh, lovely young woman, um, also is is drinking. The two of them are drinking. And, and there are various efforts to put them on the wagon, so to speak. Especially Katie, who as I say, has become extremely prominent as a medium. And Maggie is at this point still forced to live off uh, her sister and the money that her sister's broken from Leia too, um, that, that she's making. And her mother, the money that, it, that you know, supports them is also used to help support Maggie for quite a few years.
5: Mm. Uh, and Katie actually goes into the Swedish Movement Cure Hospital in the 1860s, right? And ma- and builds this relationship with the Taylors.
4: Yes, she does. Now the Swedish it was one of those many, and there were many, you know, health reform movements going on at that point. Uh, the beginning of the sanitarium um, movements, or at least the the acceleration of them, and water cures and diet cures were very popular in the mid. 19th century, you see, things never change, do they? <laughs> um, but anyway, yes, so the Swedish um, movement Cure uh, was run by this doctor, George Taylor, and his wife, Sarah, and uh, in New York City, and um, they care for Katie, and they uh, try to keep her sober and teach her about this, but every time, because she's, and she also does seances at the same time, and by the way, her seances continue continuing, her clairvoyance, and I put that in quotes, continues to be extraordinary. I mean, there are many accounts. Uh, and even with the tailors, um, she's able to call up spirits. But they lovingly uh, monitor her and take care of her. But every time she goes to a party, which they don't allow her to do till she seems to be, you know, having, having removed the addiction, Um, you know, their dinner parties and seances and whatnot, she is offered wine and, and she drinks it and then she's, she's back again. So it's a sort of a ping pong situation for them, but they, they really adopt her like a daughter and take care of her in a loving way. Mm -hmm. And eventually, eventually, um, Katie too, um, Maggie too, um, Maggie won't go to the, 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 the Taylors uh, at least initially. She resists it, um, and she um, slowly is beginning to go back to spiritualism. Leia, of course. <laughs> Leia is amazing. Um, Leia is a, a, a very bright, opportunistic, dynamic, uh, and charismatic, if tricky, person. And she finally, she marries uh, a very prominent man. Um, you know, this is a later in life thing. His last name is Underhill and he's wealthy. And uh, he is really tried to help Katie and Maggie. He supports them. He sets them up in an apartment by themselves in uh, West 44th Street, then considered a pretty nice area. Uh, in, in Manhattan and he, t- he is, is funding uh, both Katie's rehab and Maggie's support for quite a long time, even though there's, you know, just really ugly feelings and a rift between uh, Leah and her younger sisters.
5: And then in the early 1870s, uh, Katie leaves. She goes to London.
4: Yes, she does.
5: Uh, how is she received there?
4: She's wildly received because, of course, spiritualism has long since crossed the channel. Actually, since the 1850s, it's become a sensation. There are spirit circles there. Uh, There are, by the way, uh, scientists looking into all of this, trying to figure it out. Um, And she's very well received and um, very popular. And um, she, too, uh, marries a man named Henry Jenkins, who um, was well-to-do. Um, and they seem to have a happy marriage. Um, there are all kinds of things. She has two children. The first one, Ferdinand, the baby, they say, is psychic. I mean, they have all these stories about him being able to predict things and quite a bit, and then she has a second child named Henry Jr. Um, and she's still drinking, I think. Um, again, some of this is a little fuzzy in terms of the records. She's still drinking, but it's not terrible. And they seem to be happy. And then suddenly he dies. And then she discovers that uh, his legacy, his his money, that he's originally from Germany. I mean, uh, it has to go back there. She's not going to get any money for it. Um, And she comes to the United States and back to New York with her two children. Maggie, meanwhile, is... Become a spiritualist again because it's the only way she can make a living and she is good at it. She's um, become quite popular and she is um, moving along um, with that.
5: How does Maggie go from re entering spiritualism to the point in 1888 where she publishes uh, through another writer, she works with another writer to publish this confession saying that her seances are a fraud?
4: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, be quick on it. I will be quick on it because there's something else I want to say okay. afterwards, but uh, okay. which is important about the impact of spiritualism on psychology. But um, very quickly, um, Katie has come back with these children, and she's drinking again, and the children are neglected, or at least they're seized by the authorities. Uh, and she's accused of being an unfit mother. And Maggie, meanwhile, has gone to England and is doing seances there, and she is extremely upset about Katie, and she decides that she has got to confess. And so even before she comes back to New York, she, um, she confessed. She, makes, she starts to make um, comments and newspaper articles about how she's going to refute spiritualism. And indeed, um, she comes back, and there's a few interviews with uh, some New York newspapers that are hyping um what she's going to say, and then she and Katie um do an interview together uh and finally um she Maggie says, "I'm going to expose corruption in this spiritualist uh in this spiritualist ulcer." Now I mean spiritualism has now become very florid. You know, there are spirit cabinets, there are flowers that fall down during things, there are people who reappear, there's ghostly hands. I mean, the Spiritualist Now Association is very large and all over the all over the country and international, and it's become quite elaborate. Some of them are hoaxes. Some of them are. Not all. Anyway, October 21st, she appears before 3,000 people in the New York Academy of Music, and she gets up on the stage, she confesses, and she says, and this is how it happens, and she then hikes up her skirts and shows how she makes these sounds (laughs) with her feet, with her toes. Um, And, you know, by now there's a National Association of Spiritualists and so on, and uh, they're just outraged. What follows um, is an enormous controversy um, that goes on for a long time. And then a year later, because nobody by then, even though she got money for this performance and she's now written a book, uh, actually co-authored this book, um, that, uh, about spiritualism. But then she refutes it. She refutes her, re- her refutation. Um, long story short, it's, it's kind of sad. But um, it leaves a lot of questions about her. She's, towards the end of her life, Katie is, is dying and does die of alcoholism. Ultimately, Maggie does die, uh, 1892, and there are all kinds of mysterious knocks and sounds. A person who is her nurse who is not a specialist cannot explain them at the time of her death. Um, much more to say, but we're going to run out of time. So I only say that this, this psychologist have become intrigued. This leads into William James, the Harvard sco- uh, psychologist, actually in the philosophy department at Harvard, starts investigating some clairvoyance, and one of them is Lenora Piper. It's never explained. He cannot, and so this this starts the whole investigation into what we would call parapsychology today, what we would call looking into bipolar, um, all kinds of, of things that happen thereafter that become a lot more complex. Um, so it's, it's a gateway, um, if you will, into... Um, what we know today is modern, psych, modern psych, psych, psychology and, and understandings about psychiatric states, and trance states, and illnesses, and, and so on. I think that's all pretty familiar to people today, but then was a brand new investigation, and there were lots of investigations. Among them, the American Society for Psychical Research, which was bona fide um, scientists, Uh, which was uh, sort of a carryover from the earlier uh, British Society for Psychical Research. And um, much, much later, the um, national, um, 1893, the National Spiritualist Association of Churches, NISAC, um, was uh, was finally recognized um, as a a legitimate religion and used to be um, centered in upstate New York Near de it's now called the Lilydale Assembly. And I've had the privilege to go there um, and uh, and meet with some of the, the real spiritualists. Uh, I mean, there's a whole process. It isn't you can just become a spiritualist and do a seance, there's a whole registration. It's, it's very strict and fascinating. I'll just say that one more thing the, you know, people have laughed about this. Well, <laughs> people like um, Arthur Conan Doyle. Here we are, the most rational detective um, writer. He, he's a spiritualist. Um, Houdini started out um, being, believing in it, and then he got to debunk it as a, musician, as a magician. Um, you know, it just kind of goes on. This, this leads later, much later, into investigations by people like uh, William McDougall, a Harvard psychology professor who was the chairman at Duke, Uh, His disciple, Dr. Joseph Banks Ryan, who looked into ESP, Um, after World War II, parapsychology labs um, morphed into the Parapsychology Association, which is now part, by the way, of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. So that's just kind of a quick study, Hmm. Um, a quick Hmm. um, (laughs) uh, run through on some of the impacts of of this spiritualism that started with these two girls and a little, these two little girls, teenage girls in a little farmhouse in Hydesville, New York, in 1848.
3: Hey folks, it's Aaron here. I hope today's interview helped you deepen your understanding of everything involved in the world of spiritualism. But we're not done yet. We have more interviews to share with you, so stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear a preview of next week's interview.
2: This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of,
0: The kind of spiritualism that a woman like Victoria Woodhull would practice as she traveled around the country was a much more basic kind of, almost like a advice columnist that you might have in a newspaper today. She would set up in a hotel and she didn't have seances per se. She had one-on-one encounters with people who would come in with maybe physical maladies or problems in their marriage problems with their children's, financial problems, you know, just the basic things that a person would go to a priest or a, a therapist or a politician, if they so dared, and describe their situation and ask for help. These people knew Victoria wasn't equipped to provide them with actual help. But in many cases, it was enough for just to have someone to listen to what they had to say. And that in itself was empowering, both for them and for her. For spiritualists, that kind of conversation—you can imagine—after a few years, the experience they would build, you know, and the the kind of advice that they could then offer, and how it became very social and very political because they knew so many people were suffering from the same problem.
3: Unobscured was created by me, Aaron Mankey, and produced by Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Josh Thane in partnership with iHeartRadio. Research and writing for this season is all the work of my right-hand man, Carl Nellis, and the brilliant Chad Lawson composed the brand new soundtrack. Learn more about our contributing historians, source material, and links to our other shows over at historyunobscured.com. And until next time, thanks for listening.
2: Unobscured is a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.